Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, it's Owen. This episode is very special to me which is why we made it the first podcast episode, which was also filmed. To see Joe and I talk about life and investing in more detail, please visit the Rask Facebook and YouTube channels, where you can like and subscribe and be the first to get the full picture of what's going on behind the scenes. The video can also be found on the Rask Finance and Rask Media websites. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. My guest for this episode is a very special one. Joe Mager is the Chief Investment Officer of Lakehouse Capital. Lakehouse is part of the Motley Fool Australia, which is where I met Joe many years ago. To my mind, Joe is at the cutting edge of what it means to be a value investor in modern times. In this conversation, 
Joe describes his three fascinations in great detail, how he structures his team, valuation and loads more, including his favorite coffee spots in and around Melbourne and Sydney. Joe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I've got to say that uh, you, more than any other investor in Australia, are probably the one that I've learned the most from. So the fact that you have decided to join me is just awesome. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, very, I appreciate that. It's yeah. great to be here. Great. We're going to get stuck into lots of investing talk, but one of the things that I'm also going to pick your brain for is coffee spots in and around Sydney or Melbourne. That is a core competency. Yes. Uh, and it's something people probably don't know about you, actually, your love of coffee. And you even show me places in Melbourne, my own city, <laughs> that I don't know about. So that's great. I'm sure that the audience will love that. Before we get to that, there's two things I'd like to say. Firstly, this conversation is going to be recorded for Facebook and YouTube. If anyone wants to watch it on those portals, go right ahead. Uh, you can also break it on your TV. Secondly, um, I want to say thanks to you, but also thanks to the Motley Fool. That's how we know each other. That's how our paths crossed. And I think it's testament to them and the principles and the team there that I'm able to talk to you on air like this. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So, Joe, let's go back to the beginning where your passion for finance started. People could probably tell from your accent that you're maybe Midwest Australian, grew up. Oh, yeah, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> take us back to where it all began for you, mate. Sure. So I got to start pretty early in investing. I've always just been commercially curious. Mm -hmm. And my granddad, who was an entrepreneur, retired in his late 30s, very hands-on guy, really nurtured and fostered that. So he built a lake house in his free time with his bare hands with hmm. a buddy uh, up on Lake Burton in northeast Georgia. And I would spend my summers up there along with my cousins. It was an amazing experience. But while most of the other kids would be out playing in the water and doing woodsy things, hmm. I'd be hanging out with my granddad, who at that point mostly spent his time building things with his hands and managing his own money. Hmm. So he was super passionate about investing and markets, and I would sit around with him, and he'd talk about the businesses he owned and why, and we'd watch CNBC, and he'd talk about what mattered and what didn't, and I was just totally, totally taken by it. And there was this tradition where he felt like 13th birthday was a really big deal, and so he would give each one of the kids in the family like a really special gift when they turned 13. Mm -hmm. So my older cousin, he got a hunting rifle. <laughs> uh, another cousin got a piano, and I got... 10 shares in Shaw Industries, which was then the world's biggest carpet manufacturer. And I was thrilled. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like I have a stock certificate and I got quarterly dividend checks in the mail. They were like, you know, a dollar fifty or something like <laughs> that. That was awesome. I yeah. loved it. And that just um really planted a seed for me. Mm -hmm. And that just kept uh rolling forward. When you said he was an entrepreneur, what did he do? He and his brother started a business called Georgia Sprinkler. And so when the government rolled out mandatory sprinkler systems and, and large scale commercial buildings, they oh, just wow. seized the day and won a ton of business. And you didn't get a rifle, but you got chess certificates. I mean, that's, I did, cool. you know, a quick, uh, funny story about where those landed. Um, well, two funny, two funny stories. One is that it kind of led to my intro to the Motley Fool. Mm -hmm. which was my grandmother at the time. Uh, well, she was always my grandmother, but um, <laughs> she found an article in the paper back when, you know, people read newspapers. Mm -hmm. And one day she's like, Joe, you know, I, I heard that Shaw is splitting their stock 
and you know, Pop was having trouble explaining that to you. I just read this article from these guys called The Motley Fool, and it seems like they do a good job explaining it. So I just read it and I was like, God, this is so clear. Like they just made this really complex thing really simple. And I'm just, you know, a teenage kid and I can understand this very plainly. And that just, you know, started reading the column and later the, you know, the website. Mm. And do you remember who wrote that first article? I would guess that was Selena, but back then it was so long ago, it's possible it could have actually been Tom or David, Mm. but would have been a long time ago. That's cool. It's a great story. We'll come full circle on that in a moment. So most kids, when they go through school, they think, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. You know, they go see a career or some sort of counselor that helps them with that type of thing. And they, you know, even if they get a few years into their career, they still don't know what they want to do. I did not have that problem. No, it seems like (laughs) from, you know, 13 years of age, you knew once you got that stock certificate where you were going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've always been really passionate about equities. My first job out of undergrad was investment banking Mm -hmm. and it was really good experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot more about hard work, mm-hmm. but it wasn't my passion. I really wanted to work in equities and particularly I wanted to work at the Fool because I was just really passionate about the Fool's mission and style and long-term investing and business-focused investing. So I was really happy when that came together a couple of years after I got out of school and moved mm-hmm. on up to Alexandria. So it was the University of Georgia? I went to Georgia, go, go dogs yes. for undergrad. <laughs> it was the only school I applied to. Um, I, I, I wanted to go to the business school there. I've also been a lifelong George football fan. And then I, I went to Georgia State for master's in finance, uh, master's science in finance. I did that while doing investment banking, which is just a brutal couple of years. What a thing. Well, get, getting back to like being focused, I would say there's probably a little too much focus back then because in MS in finance, while you, you learn a lot doing it, the irony at the time was I was like, well, I don't want to go after an, M- an MBA because I'd learned things like management and marketing and i don't need to know that if i'm an investor (laughs) oh young joe (laughs) so if i could have uh wound back the tape a little bit on that that would have been good but but overall it was a good experience and just to work on blocking and tackling skills and invest in that early but you got the the experience obviously in your career and then you proceeded to do the cfa yep yep so you've you've, um you've definitely got the academic side now you're getting the, the business and investing side or you already have so Let's talk about from the time that you transitioned away from that investment banking job. Am, am I right in saying that you went to become a sub-editor at The Motley Fool? I was a sector editor. So my job was I was the lead editor for energy, materials, manufacturing, telecom. It was more or less all these different sectors and industries that no one else at The Fool wanted to cover. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave them the new guy. But as it turned out, that was around, it was, I started in early 2007. And that was a stretch where those industries just went completely gangbusters mm. and oil was rocketing. You know, Australians probably remember well that that was a pretty awesome time for resources. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically, the best lesson coming out of that for me was that even though I developed a lot of domain expertise in those spaces, I was like, these are terrible industries. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to invest in these. I was going to say, they're all industries that you tend to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got up close and personal with them and basically learned, okay, well, they're really, they're really cyclical. Almost all of them are price takers. They're really capital hungry. Reinvestment is really difficult. So even if you have an oil field that turns out to be wildly productive, really low cost, finding another mm. and catching lightning bottle in, in the bottle a second time is, Unlikely. Um, combine that with 
those businesses are, tend to be run by zealots. Mm. There's a lot to dislike about them. And, you know, sometimes those early experiences are really good at just telling you what not to do rather than necessarily <laughs> what you should be doing. I think we've all had a few of those experiences, especially earlier on. You must have left a, or had a pretty good impression on Tom, David, and the rest of the team at The Fool because you quickly progressed from being the, the sector editor to you know appearing on TV, international um visits for companies that type of thing where did how did it take place that you went from there to working <laughs> well, on inside getting value? getting on tv i can tell you that the hierarchy was is tom gardner available no is bill mann available no tim hansen no tim tim can't make it joe how how are you <laughs> I'm, I'm good i'm good guys uh that was kind of how i i uh started doing media um but yeah, I, I worked my way over to IV. Ironically, I was a, a charter subscriber to Inside Value many years before. So that's a really windy journey that I ended up running it. Uh, it was an awesome experience. Uh, I worked with Philip Durrell, who'd been running the service before me, had done an awesome job. He was a great mentor to me. Had a really good team there. Had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd say my my spin on value investing was pretty different from a lot of others. And I'd, I'd say that hasn't changed. Mm. So my first recommendation there was Google, which, <laughs> you know, now people look at Google and they're like, Oh, it's an empire of network effects. And the, you know, like, even though I think it's still alphabet is, is undervalued today, you know, back then, you know, this was nine years ago. Um, that, that was a fairly contrarian mm. move, at least among contrarians to be long, something like Google, but, um, but it was fun to take it in a different direction and, and the resorts were, um, we're good. I'm keen to drill into this, and we'll get to specifics in a moment. But you say you take it in a different direction. Where did that come from? When I look at the way you invest now, and I have a lot of respect for the way you go about things, where do you think – were there some influences in your career early on that shaped you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them. I'm a naturally cautious person, which a lot of people don't assume when they look at some of the things we own. But I don't ride bicycles, for example. Hmm. Those things are dangerous. I, I don't ski. Um, you know, I don't gamble. Like all these things, like, no, I don't do that. That's risky. I'm afraid of heights. Like there's all kinds of stuff that I just don't like. Long downside. I don't like tail risk. Um, but when, so that's something that even though we're growth focused investors and then probably more focused on upside capture than downside, mm. um, I am still, very cognizant of downside capture for those reasons. Cause that's just who I am personally. Over time, I got a lot more upside focused from following a lot of great investors that uh, David Gardner would probably be the one who springs to mind the most. Uh, I had a discussion with Tom, you know, this would have been I don't know, close to a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And he was like, look, I want you to just take some time and study some of David's biggest winners. Take the top 10 just as a starting point. And come back and tell me what you thought the discerning factors among them were, something that's replicable. Mm-hmm. Fully appreciating that 10 investments is not a robust sample Service. size. But, you know, some of David's wins, I don't think people realize because David doesn't run funds and he's in newsletters. I think people don't quite appreciate his, his body of work as much as they should. But a simple example of one of David's wins was he invested in Amazon and has held it since. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Cost basis, split adjusted U.S., a little over $3. Mm-hmm. And I think What's we're around 1600 today. Yeah, wow. 
not too many people can lay claim to that no. and to have held it that whole time. And David has, so far as I know, that's far and away his biggest, but he's had some other very large hits. So I have a lot of respect for him. One of the big things I took from David was one, like it's fine to focus on, you know, protecting your downside of being cautious, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can't be upside conscious. Well, two, his big wins all had self-reinforcing dynamics to them. And that could be around network effects. It could be around scale. Odds are good that there's an intersection of those things and extreme customer loyalty. And as the business is scaled, the odds of success continue to improve, but also the optionality and, and the TAMs expanded, total dress markets expanded as well. And investors are often really slow to appreciate that. And um, yeah. Hmm. And he has a, and I'll link to this in the show notes, but he has a really clean and concise way or methodology that he uses to think about these opportunities. Um, it's, it's something that I've gravitated to as well over time because it, it makes sense. Let's circle back to that in your time at Inside Value. I, I've got a quote here. And for those who don't know, this newsletter, the service that you ran was one of the, I think it was the best performing over five years from like t- a sample of 200 in America or something crazy. There was, yeah, there was a stretch there where it was the best performing over years. It, it had a good run. <laughs> we had a good team. Yeah. One of the quotes that I got from this summary of the Motley Fool at the time, but also Inside Value was, and I'll quote, it said, Inside Value sometimes recommends companies that would otherwise be considered growth stocks. It went on to say a current example is eBay at 26 times, which had a price to uh, price earnings of 26 times, but also priced a book of 3.2. And I'm, I'm going to say, is this where you really honed that ability to understand, like you said, increasing addressable markets, um, optionality, network sizes? Is that where you'd say? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time focusing on those. I'd say, you know, Inside Value was the first time I had a, a senior role as an investor and mm-hmm. someone had given me the car keys. Um, you know, I'd say I was still learning. I'm still learning today, but that was probably earlier on mm-hmm. my journey. Uh, but yes, there was, there was a lot of evolution there. And if you look back on the eBay thesis, that was really more a PayPal mm-hmm. thesis than an eBay thesis. At the time, eBay had, um, been gaining steam on the marketplace side of the business, but PayPal had just been, you know, gaining share of a growing market. So they'd been gaining share of, of digital commerce for many, many years. Digital commerce itself was gaining share of total commerce. And really where PayPal excelled was on mobile because the ease of, mm. you know, transaction and it re- reduced so much friction. So it was gaining share of mobile, which was gaining share of e-commerce, which was gaining share of the total pie. And I, between that and, you know, continuing, um, increases and, and usage per customer, um, which is real, like the real proof in the pudding for network effects. If you're seeing increasing either engagement or, or value per user and transaction, mm. um, yeah, that, um, you know, That's we, it. we own PayPal today. I've owned it for a long, well, as soon as they spun it off, um, I, I dumped my eBay shares and, and poured the balance <laughs> into buying uh, the rest into PayPal. But yeah, and the fascination for networks uh, really latched in there. And I guess what, what I get excited about network effects around is I think everybody appreciates fairly well that they're very sticky, but also value creation can happen with network effects probably faster than any other business model. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to get in fairly early and identify the key drivers, and if you can see that the business is really kind of cross the chasm and that there really is 
they have proved concept and they have attractive unit economics, then I think that, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of value creation can happen very quickly and it can really surprise investors. It's an interesting insight. And, uh, one I don't think, um, enough people pay attention to. Before we move on to, to Lake House, I want to talk about this transition from the full US and living in the US to here, coming here to Australia. About 2013, you came over, Bolsa was a relatively young Australian team or fresh Australian team. What prompted you to come down under? A bunch of things. So I'd never been to Australia before, but I had seen Crocodile Dundee and that gave me a very That's favorable, all you need. <laughs> very favorable impression of the country. Um, I had a few years before, I've been the Value Investors Congress in New York, mm-hmm. and there had been this presenter from India who came up, and he said, you know, no offense, but most of you went to similar schools, you have a similar style, um, you, your backgrounds are pretty similar, and, and you look around the room, pretty homogenous mm-hmm. environment. Um, he didn't say that, but it was easy for me to just look around and see everybody wearing the same blue shirts. And he's like, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm from a different country. And I'm going to talk to you about a market that isn't as picked over. And I'm going to show you some stocks that I think are just as quality as the ones that we've seen presented today, but they're selling at half the price tag. So let's dive into it. And I just sat there thinking, wow, I am such a sucker for only focusing on one market at the big end of town and not opening things up and, and seeing what else is out there. But there was no, you know, at the time there was no obvious change. And, and I love working at the fool. So I didn't want to make some, you know, big, crazy career move. But when Fool AU got started and got off to a good start, they were like, hey, look, we're looking for some experienced investors to come over and help grow the business and raise my hand, plan to come here for a year or two. And, you know, six years later, we've got a kid in school at our kids here and we're settled here. So things uh, don't always work out exactly as you plan. Um, but it's it's been an amazing experience. Mm. You came to Australia, you ran Hidden Gems, which is a small cap service for Motley Fool, and then Motley Fool Pro, which is a million dollar real money portfolio, still going today. But then you've transitioned to Lakehouse. Can you tell us, and listeners, many listeners will know you from the Motley Fool days, quote unquote Motley Fool days, but you're still technically part of it. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us what Lakehouse is and your motivation for, I suppose, stepping over to that side of the fence and managing money? Sure. So Lake House is funds management business that Molly Fool has based in Sydney. Um, we manage a couple of different mandates. Uh, we're high conviction business focused investors. Uh, the team operates independently from the rest of the business. Um, we're off in our own little world, but, but it's fun. And we're long only. Um, again, very business focused and, and very long term investors. Hmm. And when you stepped across, you had yourself and, and Donnie Buchanan, mm-hmm. both um, really smart blokes in, in one room. It would be a really good and um, a dynamic environment. You started with this small cap fund and then you have the large cap fund now, um, US focused. What were some of the – because we have a lot of listeners that are analysts or would-be portfolio managers, whether private or you know in the public sphere. What were some of the learnings for you earlier on? Well, there are difficulties. Sure. So, you know, we had a pretty strong launch and we felt pretty good about that. And I'd had a good run at pro, you know, ballpark over two and a half years. We were up a little over 80% gross cumulative versus about 15 Mm -hmm. for the ASX all awards. So 
you know, we'd had a good run and I had some loyal uh, followers, which I'm extremely grateful for, who followed us over to Lake House. And that gave us essentially permission to, to start at Lake House. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right around the time that we launched small cap growth, like quality growth and smalls absolutely got punched in the face. Mm-hmm. So it just got completely rocked, which was painful. Um, we had a couple positions in particular. Uh, we owned Bellamy's, which, you know, we'd owned at Pro. It was a multi-bagger and, and we'd done quite well with and still an aggregate has, has done quite well since we originally had bought it there. But, you know, as everybody probably remembers, they had not only a nasty downgrade, but then there was a stretch where the stock was suspended for, you know, I want to say several weeks. Through Christmas. Through Christmas. And so over the Christmas holidays, Donnie and I are sitting around trying to figure out how to mark this, this stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very humbling start to life as fund manager. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably a very good experience for us because it gave us an appreciation for what it's like to, uh, to have your butt handed to you. And, um, yeah, so that was a tough start. I mean, we felt like at the time that the market was being a little unfair to a lot of the stuff we owned, not Bellamy's, I think it was pretty fair to be beaten up, <laughs> but a lot of the other stuff we own. Um, but the important thing for us was, you know, we're going to stick to what we're doing and we're not going to bail on that. And at the time I remember seeing one other manager, of, you know, I'm not going to bag, but he more or less just kind of st- changed his strategy in response mm-hmm. to what had happened. And I was like, no, this is what we're doing. This is what we told people we're going to do. We're going to do it. We're going to keep doing it. And we're going to count on time working things out for us. And I, I will say, too, around that time, there was a fairly prominent Australian fund manager who was down against his benchmark around the same amount that we were at the time, who suddenly quit, sold his stake in the business at a discount to someone else, and moved home to the UK. <laughs> and this guy had been, you know, like well-known personality featured in books about great Australian investors. And I was like, so that guy just quit <laughs> and he's down by what we're down. And he quit because he didn't think he could get out of th- this hole. <laughs> like, well, um, I guess it's just one of those things when you start, you're, you're naive enough to be like, we'll make it up. Yeah. We'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be fine. And, um, yeah, that was, you know, it was a rough start, but it was a, a good education on life in the business and to not read too much into short-term performance. Um, just like, you know, we didn't hold hands and jump off a bridge <laughs> when that happened. We don't pat ourselves on the back too hard when things are going well either. Mm-hmm. I, I think with your track record at Pro, but also in the US and the following that you did have here, I think people knew it when they bought in that this is a long-term thing. And you've, you've really drilled home the philosophy and the way that you invest. You, I mean, you reiterate it with every monthly letter. We'll get to the investment process and that philosophy in just a moment. But one of the things that you and I have talked about before, and you briefly mentioned this not too long ago to me, is about hiring. And I think, obviously, being a small business at the time, it's key. It's crucial, right? The first people that you hire are the most important. Huge. So you talked about this idea, and it's not really fit for podcasts, but you talked about this idea of having a circle of competence and, and your circle of competence as an investor and how you would look for another investor, an analyst, whose circle of competence not is not identical to yours, but o- overlaps in a, in a way that there's common ground, but it can force your own circle of competence wider. So can you, and I thought that was a really neat way to frame it, can you tell me what you're looking for when you hire? And because you've made a few hires recently, but yeah, perhaps you can just explain that circle of competence idea and then how you 
go about the types of personalities that you're looking for in the philosophy? Yeah, sure. So hiring is something I get really passionate about. And I think that a lot of investors sometimes they get too much caught up on reading their 101st investing book rather than <laughs> focusing on how can we improve our hiring process so we get better, more talented and aligned mm. investors on our team to help drive growth in the business. Um, so it's something that I get kind of obsessed with. Like a lot of PMs will kind of outsource um, vetting for candidates. I review every cover letter, every CV, and that's, you know, we'll get like 100 applications when we post mm. a job in a market that's, you know, for any Americans investing, it's a 13th the size population of the U.S. So like we get a lot of you know, mm. inbound inquiries. And it's a big investment of time, but it's absolutely worth it because those people that you're getting early on with your journey, you know, they're driving and shaping the culture of your business. So my big goal is going into it. I don't have a clear vision of exactly what we're looking for, but I do know that I want someone who shares and embraces our philosophy and style. Um, I can't, I can't change that. And I don't want to try to change that. So good example, Steve Johnson, you had on the show recently. I think the world of Steve, super bright guy. Wow. He's one of the clearest thinkers that I've encountered in the market here. Huge respect for Steve. Mm -hmm. We own some overlapping things, have in the past. Styles are pretty different. I don't think we would be good. I don't think we'd be good business partners. I don't think we would work well together. Um, so I'm looking for people who share those same values, you know, super long-term focus, growth focused. Um, for the most part, positive, optimistic people who are looking for upside in situations. But also that bring different points of view and perspectives to mm -hmm. the table and share some of the circle of competence that we have. Not necessarily all of it, but some. So in terms of points of view and perspective, we've got five investors on the team. Four of them have worked, lived or worked outside of Australia. The fifth is a dual national. And I find that just having different ways to look at some more problems is helpful. Mm -hmm. And in circles of competence, you know, I've, I've worked with some analysts in the past where they had strong subject matter expertise, but in an area that I didn't, and I didn't really grasp the, I didn't really grasp the opportunity mm. set there. And what I found was that basically none of their ideas ended up in the portfolio. So my sweet spot is, well, we want some overlap because otherwise they're going to be frustrated that they're not getting things in. I'm going to be frustrated because I'm not getting actionable ideas. But at the same time, I want them to have skills and knowledge that I don't have so that they're pushing us on new ideas and in new directions. But so long as it fits within the same style and, and philosophy. During my time researching fund managers, you would often see there would be analysts who are what we call generalists. And then there are analysts that may be sector experts. And they would be siloed in, in this team if it was a big enough um, fund or what have you. You, we talked off air just a moment ago. You mentioned, is it fascination points? Is that what yeah. you call it? Can you explain that? Idea? Yeah. So we're competitive advantage focused investors. And if, you know, we don't have sector limits, um, our big idea is we want to find exceptional businesses with long reinvestment runways, attractive unit economics. Uh, and we want to find them, back them, have a deep understanding of them and, and get them in the portfolio. If that's your goal, the best way to do that isn't to split people up by geography, which is kind of a false dichotomy, or, or even by sector. It's to focus on the advantages, I think, that you actually want to get. So for us, those, those kind of core fascinations around loyalty networks and IP. And we have each person, well, we have a person for each of those fascinations on the team, essentially our in-house thought leader on that subject matter. And that's across both funds. 
So for example, uh, Nick runs point on Nick Thompson runs point on loyalty for us. Anytime we look at a business that has retention economics, anything where we can estimate an LTV to CAC, I turn to Nick and say, Hey, run this through what you got. Give me some context and tell me what you think. And because that's his domain expertise, I think there is somewhat of an analytical edge there. Mm. And, um, I think that it helps steer us, helps steer us in the right direction in terms of fishing in spots where we're more likely to catch fish rather than if I just told Nick, okay, you're Latam, Africa, uh, and Asia, go at it. You know, he, he might be flailing about a little bit. So it helps really focus the discussion. And we've, we found it really, it's helpful for idea gen. It's helpful for understanding economics and, and really narrowing exactly what it is that we're looking for. Let's talk about narrowing it. So you've got the Australian fund, small cap, but you've got the global fund. It's a big universe. How do you go from that to something more manageable? Do you use specific tools, filtering techniques? Are you using any of that? or? Well, so one of the advantages of working across those kinds of mandates, and I guess to step back a little bit. So typically we're looking for companies um, – what I described before, we're looking for companies that we think ultimately have asymmetric outcome opportunities. And, and where that can come from is you've got a variant perception around competitive advantage. Uh, you think it's got a better one or that it's moving in the right direction uh, faster and at a bigger rate than other people appreciate. Uh, you think the valuation is reasonable. You think the balance sheet is attractive. You think that they have pricing power that's either been flexed or latent. Um, and they're not flexing it and they're getting the benefit of extreme customer loyalty instead. You know, you kind of put those things together along with a management, a management team that's got skin in the game, a strong capital allocator, trustworthy. And I feel like if you do that more often than not, you're putting yourself in a situation where you've got multiple ways to potentially win and fewer ways to lose than average. Mm. You're going to get some of those wrong, but when you put all that together consistently, you're going to end up in places where in aggregate, I think you'll be happy with performance. Now, practically speaking, when you flow all that through, overwhelmingly you end up invested or focused at least on software. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's enterprise software. Um, we do a lot in e-commerce. We do a lot in payments, consumer. And those are the places that, again, tying back to fascinations. That's where we end up doing most of our work. Mm. You've said to me tongue-in-cheek before that if an, a, a dyed-in-the-wool value investor was to look at your portfolio, they might think, geez, he's a cowboy. Joe's a cowboy. Can you explain, you've, you've touched on a bit, bits of it there, but some of the things that you look for that perhaps a quote-unquote typical value investor doesn't look for? Because I think that's there's some misconceptions around the things that you do buy and where you see that value and others don't. I think if one really interesting one is around customer retention. Mm, yeah, well, I consider myself a value investor in a I'm spiritual but not religious kind of way. <laughs> And I care about paying a good price, but I care more about being directionally right around business quality and, and varying perceptions around that. And yes, price does capture that to some extent, but, you know, let's just kind of step back some. So if you are focused on investing in high quality growth companies, um, maybe you got a business gaining share of a growing market, really attractive unit economics, visible unit economics, and a, and a visible market opportunity. A lot of the other things that I'd mentioned. You may get the price wrong, but the longer you hold it for, the more likely you are to end up with a return that, you know, gravitates towards that incremental return on invested capital, which, you know, if you've done your work and things go well, 
you know, hopefully is attractive. On the flip side, if you buy something that's it, you know, let's say a below average business, but you buy it for a really cheap price, what you're hoping for is, yeah, look, I know that this probably isn't going to sell for a dollar. Um, it's a below average business. Maybe it should only sell for, you know, 85 cents on the dollar. And, but right now, you know, the market says it's, it should be cheap. We all agree it should be cheap. I, but it's really cheap right now. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to close the gap between really cheap and cheap. Well, a lot of investors, when they talk about growth stocks, like, well, you better hope it grows into that valuation. You know, ironically, when you flip that around, I'm like, well, you better hope that you're right about the valuation if you're investing in bad mm. businesses, because the longer you hold it for, the more likely you are to get a bad return, because it's likely not creating value and might actually be reinvesting at, at detrimental rates. So, you know, I, I have an appreciation for value investing, but I think a lot of conventional approaches to it um, to fall flat. I mean, I think one, you have time working against you. Two, I think it's a less tax. I think it's more tax drag yeah. with the strategy than something that's that's longer term, and that doesn't show up in fund performance numbers mm -hmm. because they're pre-tax. But for real people, that mm -hmm. does matter. And a third thing on value is, you know, which again, you you could look at any number of factor studies that shows value investing works. Then again, it's it's you know getting factored, and there are funds that that tackle this. But something that I think is a little dangerous from an active management standpoint is when you think about allocating resources. If you're a value manager, you're basically leaping from one distressed space to another, trying to find great opportunities because something sold off really hard. Almost often when you land in that space, you are the patsy at the poker table, and it takes some mm -hmm. time to get up to speed to where you can actually dive into the pool and, and not worry that you're going to hit some rocks underneath it. The only thing is that that doesn't strike me as a particularly effective resource allocation. Mm. Uh, while it might be fun from an intellectual uh, curiosity standpoint, you're bouncing around, you're always slow to catch up to the thesis, and you're also investing historically, you're spending a lot of time in really cyclical industries that are distressed probably for good reasons, and maybe you're developing domain expertise that actually isn't all that useful or valuable in a very long-term sense. So just like I learned a lot about you know, mining and resources earlier in my career, I wouldn't say they really add any value for me. Yeah. You've, you touched on there, but we'll just recap. So it's the, the get the business part right, and then the valuation is probably the lesser hurdle, if you like, if you're investing for a very long period of time. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say like there's – with valuation, there's science and art, and mm -hmm. I, I'm not the first person to say that, but I think that there's some ways that – I kind of break it apart like this. So the science part is can you actually build a model and build it correctly and understand the theory behind it? You know, you can get 22-year-olds who can who can do all that. The art is the experience side of it, which is much more difficult. And what I find where the experience side comes in is knowing when to override the model. And that is much easier said than done. And there are ways where we're a lot more patient around that or we're not. And we kind of build in behavioral checks and rules to prevent us from falling down model traps. Mm -hmm. And to give you, I can give you upside examples and downsides. So okay. to the upside, I went back and looked at before coming on a, my Amazon recommendation from July, 2012 stock was around 225, and my intrinsic value estimate at the time was 290. Hmm. Now, it's fair to say uh, that has gone well, but what's interesting about that is rather than sell every time Amazon kissed or got near its estimate of intrinsic value, which was just kind of like moving up in rough steps for me over time, 
I felt like, well, this is a business with intensely loyal customers that has a track record of expanding its TAM and leveraging those that intense loyalty and brand trust into progressively better markets. Uh, it helped that they're also moving into higher margin markets mm. with better unit economics, but um, giving it more room to run because it had that, ups- that upside-centric optionality. To the flip side, if you look on the downside, what I found is a lot of investors, technically speaking, if you have a stock that um, delivers results and guidance that is much worse than you're expecting, what will typically happen is you see a scenario like stock drops, you know, 40%, you update your model, and you only think it's worth 20% or less. Well, I know it wasn't what we were expecting, <laughs> but it's cheaper than it was before, relatively speaking, so let's average down. Those are the situations where I have lost the most money personally and professionally over time and uh, set a lot of capital on fire. And the reason is similar to just like on the upside where people are slow to update their assumptions and appreciate how quickly those things can change. Same thing happens on the downside. Mm. So again, I, I put a lot of stock in modeling, but at the same time, you just, you need to know when there are limitations to that and your ability to conceptualize what is extremely difficult to, to value and forecast. You said that experience sometimes would override the model. Has it been instances where you've bought at what you would consider fair value and just back the business or back the, the quality of management? So rather than finding bargains. You know. Yeah. I mean, my general bias would be I'd rather instead of buying a 50 cent dollar, I'd rather pay 85 cents for a dollar that I think in five years is going to be worth $2. So one of the things that strikes me is your focus on retention. And you wrote a piece recently about the difference and you gave two hypothetical examples. I think it was a company that has 90% retention versus one that has 60, 70% retention. Can you explain how that affects valuation, that long-term thinking? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our kind of in-house structural perceptions is that we think investors consistently underestimate what are optically small differences in retention rates, but mm-hmm. in terms of value creation are actually huge. A simple example is we'll use two businesses, one that has a 90% customer retention rate and one that's 80%. The one at 90, you know, optically not very different from 80. Practically speaking, the one that retains at 90% has an average customer life of 10 years. The one at 80% has five years. So roughly speaking, that means either the one at 90% can spend almost twice as much to win customers while keeping comparable mm. unit economics as the one at 80. So they run away with the market and they get the optionality and pricing power that go with that. Or they keep the same customer acquisition spend, uh, but they end up with massively better margins and, and the fruits of that, you know, flow back to shareholders. So in both cases, I'm still, I'm into those businesses very strongly, and we focus a lot on trying to discern the difference between, okay, like 80%, 85 90 Then you get up to businesses where you have usage-based pricing. And for some enterprise companies like Atlassian, which is close enough that you could hit it with a, you know, a one iron from here, <laughs> um, you know, in that case, you've got situations where you have revenue retention that's above 100%. And those kinds of businesses can scale at luscious rates for a really long time. And when you have that kind of loyalty, when I think people, they miss not only just the long tail of that and the visibility and the benefits that come with having that kind of visible um, reinvestment economics and stability with the business, but also the optionality that mm. comes from the just 
intense customer loyalty that you have, if you have 90% customer retention, that probably means that someone is running a product that you have is mission critical, be really difficult for them to rip out. It's deeply integrated, might be a multi-year project to take you out. Probably no, no one at the company is all that enthused, <laughs> particularly not a CFO, about making those kinds of changes. In situations like that, now ideally, it's not just switching costs that you're keeping them. And part of the reason we talk about fascinations, um, we don't have one that's switching costs, it's loyalty. is because loyalty is more than just, well, it's difficult to move off mm. those systems. It's, we love this business, we love this brand, and we're committed to it, and we want to stick with it. So if you're able to deliver that for customers and delight them, you can extend that brand and that service level into new services, products, markets. I mean... Amazon being the ultimate poster boy for that, but to use it at Lassie. And again, you have Jira, which is just, you know, caught on like wildfire uh, with engineers or developers, depending on how you like to say it. And um, that gives them huge legitimacy when they roll out new products and services because people are like, yes, we love Jira. Yes, we trust you. Yes, we want to hear what else you have. What other problems can you solve for us? And when you have that kind of loyalty and retention, it's a very different discussion than if you're coming in at, you know, 80% retention rates and, and just at large, when people talk about recurring revenue, um, that's why we tend to focus again on, on loyalty rather than recurring revenue because so many companies say, Oh, you know, we have 70% of our revenue is recurrent mm. in nature. And you're like, well, what does that mean? You really have to unpack that. And a lot of times what people consider recurring is like, Oh, well, it's the local grocer and people live near it and people don't change grocery very often. I'm like, well, that's. That's not what we have in mind. Mm. We have extreme loyalty here, like contractual loyalty that, that's built in. Mm. I think that goes a long way. If you are investing, you know, this five plus year time horizon, it goes back to what you alluded to earlier, which is this idea that you're focusing on companies that can compound their intrinsic value. So you're not focused on closing the gap between uh, price and value, but also the companies that can grow exponentially their value, not price. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the things that we own... I would say, but like personally and at Lake House, they're not things that look conventionally cheap. There are some examples of that, but for the most part, you know, if you're, if you're investing in a really high quality business that's gaining share of a growing market, a leader in a, its field has really great unit economics or really good balance sheet, you know, markets are somewhat inefficient, but they're not stupid. And mm -hmm. so they're going to give a business like that somewhat of a premium, but. You know, depending on the situation, we think those premiums could be more than worth paying up for. In a recent show I did with Forager, and this is Steve Johnson, we talked about, and this is to step away from the, the, the fund and the portfolio for a moment, but we talked about this idea of optionality and how it plays a, a role in his life in terms of housing and having being a renter rather than an owner. And it's something that you taught me as well. You said you, know, you love the op optionality of not owning a home. Two questions. How, is there some defining characteristic you would say? I mean, we've talked about software. Is there anywhere else where you would find these companies that offer optionality? And the second follow-up is, do you own a house or are you still renting? <laughs> I'll cut to the second one. So still renting, um, depending on how you know home prices keep going, maybe, maybe that could change. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I, I like optionality and flexibility and in aspects of investing in my personal life, uh, I like to keep things flexible. Um, with companies, you know, how do you find optionality? I think these are things that are kind of associated with optionality. One is balance sheet strength. 
So mm. it sounds really simple, but if you are balance sheet constrained, your ability to reinvest and build a brand, reinvest in your tech, grow the business, you know, you, you have a tough time with that. And I think you look at MYO, MYOB, I think that's a, a mm. fairly good example where Zero came along, you know, aggressively investing, you know, hard for MYOB to make that same kind of mi- commitment on top of, you know, making the change from mm. changing your business model. But when you're financially constrained like that, it, it limits your options. Flip that around. If you're a profitable business with tons of cash, well, you can take that in a lot of different directions. And it's a very basic point, but I think it's really important. Uh, another is getting back to, well, how loyal are your customers? Um, how large is your market? Is there a logical market for you to move into? Can you move into larger ones? And so the last one is really interesting for me because I found that Australian investors, and this is like moving into foreign markets, your point of view on this is very different if you're Australian versus American. If you're American, the beautiful thing about the US market is it's huge, mm-hmm. it's fairly homogenous, and if you run the table in the States, you can create immense value. The problem is that when you move into different markets, like anytime you move into different markets, you have new cultures, new regulations, you're starting from scratch in a lot of respects. And that's true of no matter what country you're in, moving to different markets. But from the U.S., you're also typically moving into smaller opportunities with incrementally worse returns on invested capital. The inverse is true in Australia. So it's, mm. you know, it's the Emerald Isle and a lot of people have really good pound for pound businesses here. But, um, you know, historically, like most fund managers I talk to here, they're super bearish about Australian mm. companies going overseas. And I think they look at it and they're like, well, most of, you know, most of the time it fails. That's true, but that's the base rate in every country. You know, that's true for American companies as well. It's not like Australian companies are particularly bad at mm. going overseas. And you can find some really great examples of, you know, the CLSL springs to mind and Altium springs to mind. Computer share. I mean, computer share is over a hundred bagger from its IPO. Mm. It's a wild success and nobody ever seems to give them credit or, or talk about. And if you're moving from a market that's one thirteenth the size to another, is it going to work? No. Like the base rate for that kind of move is probably not mm. going to work. But if it does, you know, that could be a huge value driver. So we, we like that kind of optionality. When you think about risk, I'm interested to know how you think about it from a portfolio level, but also from a stock by stock or case by case basis. Because I, I saw a, a Your Money clip you did maybe a month ago. And you were giving the eyes, and the eyes were, how did you not see this coming? And we we're talking about, you were talking about a, a, a bins business, a trash removal business that had just collapsed in a matter of minutes on the, on the market. How do you think about risk from, like I said, the portfolio level? Do you take a top down view of geographies? And then you talked earlier about this risk reward trade-off and, and you want the, the odds to be skewed in your favor, the probability upside. How do you, how do you, how do you get a handle on that at, at a stock level? And also from the geography point of view, looking down our, I think our risk management is best done at the position level. Mm-hmm. And if we're finding and we're sticking to and being dogmatic about situations where we think there are multiple ways to win, few ways to lose, and we stick with that, I think I'm going to like our range of outcomes. And by mm. the way, part of the reason we're high conviction investors is there aren't that many opportunities mm. that actually tick all those boxes. That's also part of the reason that we're, that we're patient long-term investors. Again, there aren't that many opportunities that tick, <laughs> tick those boxes. So sometimes people are like, oh, hey, ask me for a stock tip, Joe. And they ask me for a tip. I'm like, oh, that's what you told me like 
five years ago. And I'm like, I know, dude. <laughs> I'm like, I, I buy stuff and I hang on to it for a really long time. Um, but anyway, at the position level, I think is where we do most of our, our controls and portfolio construction certainly matters, you know, sizing, diversification. But at the same time, if you own a bunch of businesses that are say cyclical, have bad unit economics, bad balance sheets, how you size those or diversify among them is just moving deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm. So we, we focus more from the, from the position level, um, to portfolio. Because the reason why I asked about portfolio levels, because you're giving the eyes like, because you not see this coming Australia, housing, etc. Yeah. So I was giving the eyes. I was laying that on pretty thick because at the time, well, what was funny is this company that, um, a lot of their business was, um, waste removal for mm, residential construction. And given how that has downsloped pretty hard here, I guess what shocked me was that people were shocked was the bigger surprise. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that's the case is, you know, Australians haven't seen a recession in a quarter century. It's been so long since they've had to deal with that at home that I think some of this stuff kind of sneaks up. Mm. Um, we're very conscious of that. We're very conscious of, you know, household debt levels and that housing prices are softening. You know, that said, you know, I, I've cast my lot here in Australia. We got a kid in school here. Like we live here and, and you know, aside from choosing your spouse, the country you live in is probably the biggest meta level bet you're going to make. <laughs> so I'm super bullish on Australia's future, but I think in the medium term, there's real risk that a lot of investors aren't appreciating some of those, those risk factors, particularly around leverage. And a lot of PMs who, oh, they would have gone through the GFC, but they didn't necessarily experience a recession with mm. the companies they owned and seeing the deleveraging that goes with that. I mean, you've got, you know, 40 year old PMs that haven't invested through a bear market or invested through a recession. Let's say invested through a recession. And that's a really unusual dynamic. Mm. Partly that's, you know, it's, You'd say it's a good problem to have because Australia's mm -hmm. had such an amazing run. But I think that that's something that could catch some people flat-footed. How we deal with that? Um, I'm not big on making like sweeping macro calls. Try to be a data-driven investor. You know, All the research will tell you that making big sweeping macro calls is more or less a toss-up. Mm. And I don't think we have an edge in that game. I, our, I think, edge in, in our passion is around evaluating businesses. So that's where we stick. That said, you know, I think we'd kind of have to have our head in the sand a little bit with household debt levels, how it's cooling off and thinking about monetary policy and all that context. So, you know, we probably lean a little heavier towards focusing on recurring revenue right now than usual, a little heavier towards international footprints and diversification, cash, a little heavier than usual. Um, but I'd, Something I'm really big on and like, I like enough cash that I can sleep well knowing that we have something to put to work if I wake up and there's a flash crash. On the other hand, I don't want our performance to be dictated by how much cash we have in the portfolio. I want it to be done and driven by the businesses that we own. So I think by design or by nature, the way you invest lends itself to investing in that type of climate. Although we talked about how potential re-ratings of the, the investments that you own. In terms of valuation, the mission critical software businesses are exactly that. They're mission critical. So you would like to think that even the worst recession, those businesses are still going to be clipping the ticket on whatever industry they're in and they're still going to be making a profit. So I suppose 
you talked about positioning just there and the, the tilts that you might be making at the moment. It's what you're thinking if you were to st- stare into your crystal ball is not, you know, grab the baked beans and shotgun and head to the hills. It's just a matter of tweaking the, the different elements in the portfolio and over the next five years or something like that. Yeah, I yeah. think if you look over a very long time horizon, you know, the Australian equity market, like most global share markets, has done extremely well. And I think the base rate assumption has to be that over the long run, they'll continue to do well. There's always something to be concerned about. Um, if, if you don't buy into that, just uh, Google Morgan Housel. Yes. Morgan's done plenty of great work on this, uh, but there is always something to work about. It's something uh, to worry about. He talks about, and you know, that's, that's always true. You hear, you hear, you know, chief investment strategists say things like, Oh, well, you know, it's an uncertain time. Will you tell me when the certain time is? Because I'd I'd love to know that. I'm I'm yet to experience that in my career. Um, but yeah, I mean, we you know, big picture, we're also looking for businesses that, you know, realistically, if there's a huge recession, are they going to get derated? Yes. Like I'm not going to everything pre- will. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend like that's not going to happen. But at the same time, we're looking for ones where you know to take cloud computing or you know let's say enterprise SaaS that's cloud based. I guess it'd be all enterprise SaaS, most of it. Um, you're looking at a situation where the ongoing shift from on-prem and desktop to cloud is not going to change whether or not there's a recession. Mm. And if anything, there's a decent argument that it could accelerate the change mm. because you have people who are more cost conscious. They're not going to go out and do this huge CapEx buy for software packages, big license purchase. They're going to be looking for more cost-effective alternatives. And you, know, mm. you could say the same with online advertising. And those shifts that um, there may be speed bumps along the way, but that there is a just really strong secular tailwind behind it. Okay, as we come to the end of our discussion, how can our listeners find out more about Lakehouse and about you? You're on Twitter? I am on Twitter uh, at, at Mager. I, I pronounce it Mager, but people pronounce it differently. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm out there. And you know, if you look around for us, you'll find us. Yeah, it's lakehouse.com.au. Uh, lakehousecapital.com.au. Yeah, cool. We just talked a bit about recessions and it's a bit of doom and gloom, I guess. So I want to end this on a positive note. And there's a few little tongue-in-cheek questions here. So I want to know your, your favorite books, your investing books. There is a couple that I know are in your office because I've seen them. Over the course of your career, what are the books that have influenced you the most? So kind of stepping past Buffett and Munger because they're like the foundations of the house for anyone who's business focused investors, I would say. I'd say Pat Dorsey's little book that builds well. Uh, huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Tremendous thinker. He's former director of research at Morningstar and now owns, uh, now has his own firm. Uh, incredibly bright guy and does a wonderful job of distilling down competitive advantage in a way that, um, just jumps off the page at you. Mm-hmm. And it's a tremendous book. I highly recommend it. Another is The Outsiders by Will Thorndike, where he profiles eight investors who, uh, not investors really, they're, they're chief, you know, they're CEOs, but he thinks of them as chief capital allocators who have created tons of value over a very long time. And I've seen some criticisms of the book where people say, well, there's some survivorship bias here because there's always going to be people, be people that did incredibly well. Um, just like earlier, I was talking about, you know, studying some of David's winners. There's some survivorship bias. And just because you're working off a small sample doesn't mean it's you know, necessarily uh, significant. But the broader point is just that 
CEOs do have immense impacts mm. on value creation in a business. And while this is a point that is obvious, this is obvious to anyone who has worked inside a real business mm. for a while, I find is often missed by people who, if your first job out of, you know, you worked on spreadsheets, your first job out of school was mm. on the buy side, you drive straight into that world and you haven't really worked inside, you know, a real business. Like I, I worked in my dad's family business for a long time, for example, you, you develop a better appreciation for how management steers a business. And as growth focused investors, we care a lot about the capital allocation shops for managers because they're reinvesting, you know, typically a hundred percent, sometimes more, yeah. um, back into the business to grow it. So it's, I think it's just a really helpful framework. Mm, I agree. The outside is great book. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's, I find it's really good because it, it's not what I thought. It's about CEOs, not necessarily investors, but the CEOs are investors on the capital allocation side. So I think it's a fascinating book. Okay. The question, the most important question, there's two left, but this is the most important one. Your favorite coffee spots, Melbourne and Sydney. Well, I got to go Patricia's yes. in Melbourne. I, I always stay close to there so that I can go there. I'll go Cabrito, Cabrito. in, yeah, that is Bolton Place here in Sydney. Yeah. It's very nice. Uh, we're also, I like Manchester Press. Yes, Manchester Press. I'm pretty Press. sure that you do as well. Yeah. yeah, they got that blueberry. It's, it's terrible for you, but they have this blueberry bagel with popcorn and bacon. And oh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, but I get it every time I go. Um, yeah. Very big fan. Great. Okay. And the final one, Joe, is my favorite question, but I'm going to ask it in a slightly different way because you have a young family. How will you or would you go about teaching your children about investing and what are the key lessons you'd tell them? So it's a good question and we're already kind of easing our way into that because we get questions like, you know, what does Papa do? Mm -hmm. And I have to explain that and I talk about, well, you know, me, Donnie, and Pooja, Nick, and Erwin, we go out and we take investors' money and we invest it in companies. And our hope is that these companies use that money and they grow and they make products and services and they help people and their customers do things better themselves and make them happy. And if they do that well for a long time, then we'll grow our investment for our investors and they'll do well. He seems to like grasp that on a high level. Um, but I think just getting them started early with, you know, like my grandfather gifted me shares of a carpet company, you know, carpet companies are a little mundane. Um, but something that's a little more energizing mm -hmm. would probably speak to a lot of people, hopefully get them in the game. I mean, the most important thing is getting started early. Um, just probably talking about businesses in terms of solving problems for mm -hmm. people and making customers happy rather than making money. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a better way to connect with kids. Joe, thanks for everything. This is great advice. That's great advice. Look forward to hearing from you again soon, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, 
active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.